Before we open God's word this morning, I can't help but uh, make sure you know that uh, Carl and Belva are here, and we have missed you. Carl's been training down in um, a city that I grew up in, in Olympia. In fact, were you still attending Westwood? church where Jerina and I went for some time, and so it's, it's really, really good uh, to see you and hope that we'll be seeing more, more of you in the days ahead as you make transitions. Know that we've been praying for you, and we're, we've got your back, no question. This morning, I want to invite you to turn in God's Word uh, to Psalm chapter 17. Psalm chapter 17. It was several months ago that uh, you graciously sent Jereen and I uh, on a trip, and we began that trip in the city of London, spent six days there, and then made our way to the city of Edinburgh, and uh, spent the remainder of our days in Scotland. On our way back from Scotland, we had about a six-hour layover in Newark, New Jersey. And so I asked Jereen, I said, what would you think if we kind of took a shot in the dark and tried to find a train, and we went into New York City. It was only about a 20-minute train ride, and Doreen said, yeah, let's go for it. And so we, uh, it, it took some doing. I have to tell you, it's very confusing if you've never been there. And we finally found the right train. It seems like there are hundreds of trains, but we found the right train. We uh, went into the, the heart of New York City where we would have time to wander around in Times Square. I remember when we got off the train, our first sight was to look behind us and we saw Madison Square Garden where a lot of great boxing has taken place, a lot of uh, horrible basketball has taken place, if you know what I'm talking about, the New York Knickerbockers. And then we saw the Empire State Building. And uh, so we saw a lot of really great things. Uh, we had a chance to eat a, a New York hot dog uh, from one of the vendors, and that was it. And I have to tell you, as exciting as it was, it was frustrating. Within walking distance was the 9-11 memorial. Not too far from that was uh, where you could see the Statue of Liberty, where you could see the, uh, the new uh, Freedom Tower. Uh, we didn't get to see any of that. And so as we got back on the train, we were filled with excitement, but also filled with frustration. There was so much to see, but not enough time to see it. And of course, we didn't want to miss our plane to get back home. Drain and I have since decided that in order to do New York City any kind of justice, you would have to spend several days there. And even after several days, you would only be scratching the surface of, of exploring this massive city. Well, I want you to remember the story this morning as you have your Bibles open before you as we zero in on the subject of prayer. Prayer, you see, is an is a absolutely massive subject that simply cannot be covered with any degree of comprehensiveness in one sermon. Prayer is like that enormous city that is just waiting to be explored. And so this morning, we will focus really on two basic elements of prayer. And I trust that as we do so, it will be a major encouragement to you. One of my favorite authors, of course, is John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what Bunyan said about prayer. He said, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. What you have to understand about prayer is that you, when you read the Bible, within the pages of Scripture, there is an assumption that we will pray. Jesus says it like this, And when you pray, hear the assumption, when you pray, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus continues in the next verse. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And so there is an automatic assumption that the people of God will pray. There is not only an assumption, there is also an expectation. There is an expectation to pray. That's why Paul says in Colossians 4, continue steadfastly. In prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He continues in the next verse. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Of course, you're very familiar with Paul's plea in First Thessalonians where he says, 
pray without what? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Martin Luther said it like this, As it is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to make shoes, so it is the business of the Christian to pray. And so scripture provides a plea for us. There is a plea to prayer for, for each of us. Several things I would highlight. Prayer is a means of mobilizing people for the work of the ministry. In Matthew 9, we are told, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. We actually did that last week. We did that as the, as the young people came and we, we prayed for them. We mobilized them. And I must tell you that based on my conversation with my son and others in the team and what we heard this morning as BJ interviewed them, is God is at work in the hearts of our young people. He is not only at work in the hearts of these children, and we're so thankful for that, but what I'm very excited about is he is on the move. He is on the move. He is, he is moving in the hearts of young people at Christ Fellowship. Scripture urges us to, to pray in order to mobilize people for the work of the ministry. In addition, prayer is a means to steer clear from temptation. Let's do something really quick. Everyone has to participate. Ready? How many of you have ever been tempted? If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to call on you to come forward. I want to ask you a few questions. Okay. We've all been tempted. And so prayer is a means to steer clear from temptation. Matthew chapter 26. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Then, of course, we find the model of prayer when we observe the life of Jesus. In Matthew 14, after he had dismissed the crowds, that is, Jesus, when he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountaintop by himself to do what? To pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And so we see that the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in complete submission to his Father as we must be in submission to the Father as well. He made it a priority to spend time alone in prayer. Consider with me the, the method of dealing with enemies. Prayer is a method for dealing with enemies. In Luke 6, we read, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And then finally, we see that prayer is a motivation to fruitfulness in ministry. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul says, To this end, we always pray for you. I want to tell the young people we made a commitment to pray for you every day last week. And certainly we did that. And God was honored by your service. He was honored by your faithfulness. And I, I, I think I can speak for the whole church family. What an honor it was to pray for you in this endeavor. And so Paul says to this end, we always pray for you that God may make a way for you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, this is just the tip of the iceberg. These are a few areas as we look at the plea to pray in Scripture to show you the multifaceted purposes of prayer. Now, one of the overarching characteristics of prayer, as you know, is that prayer at the most basic level is, is crying out to God. And that's exactly what, what King David does in this passage. He cries out to God. Now, the title of the message this morning is Prayer, a Direct Pipeline to God. And I think it would be safe to say that one of the great realities that you and I take for granted in the Christian life is that we have, brace yourselves, we have unfettered, unhindered access to a holy God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wanted to, to get in to, to visit with someone? Did you know that many churches are like this, that you have to go through several secretaries to get to the pastor? Some churches are so large that you have to go through a receptionist, to a secretary, to an executive secretary, to an assistant, to the pastor. And then finally, you may have access to that pastor. Or have you ever wanted to receive access to a, a local government official? a state legislator, uh, a, a senator for the state that you live in, or 
even a governor or the president of the United States. I think it would be very safe to say that it's really not possible for any of us to end up in the Oval Office. We just don't have access. However, we do have unfettered, unhindered access to the most important being in the universe. And his name is Yahweh. We have access to God. Well, David is quick to make good use of this direct pipeline to God. Would you stand with me as we read our passage together and notice how David makes good use of this direct highway or access to God? He says this in Psalm 17:1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. You, have, you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, and you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrendered, or they, they have surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Let's pray. Father, with the word of God open before us, I pray that you would show us wonderful things in your law. God, I thank you for uh, the recent lesson you've been teaching me, the, the importance of not only reading your word, seeing your word, but savoring your word and realizing that in and of myself and in and of ourselves, we simply won't see wonderful things in your law. We need assistance. We need divine help. We need the Holy Spirit to, to illuminate this text, to shed the light on the pages before us. And so as we study in this short time, Psalm chapter 17, I pray that you would help us to, to discover these important lessons that concern prayer. And I pray that our, our prayer lives would be helped, that this would be a benefit to us, that this would be an encouraging time for your people. So we trust your spirit to stir us up, to help us, to educate us, uh, to inspire us, to convict us, to challenge us as we study your word together. We do it all in the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. There are really two pillars I want to help you see today that concern prayer. The first is that prayer involves a confident approach to God. Prayer involves a confident approach to God. Now, King David actually has already written about this confident approach to God. He understands that we don't enter the presence of God willy-nilly. We don't just walk into the presence of God without any precondition. In fact, I will put it this way. There are qualifications in order to commune with the king. There are, if you will, prerequisites that need to be in place in order for you and I to have this confident approach to God in order to see what's on David's heart. I want to have you turn in your Bible just one page back, maybe even on the same page to Psalm chapter 15. And here it's very interesting because David helps us to see what those qualifications are, what those prerequisites are for communing with the king so that we can have this confident approach to God. Look at Psalm 15 one. 
He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The answer is in verse 2. He essentially says this, what are the qualifications for communion with the king? What are the prerequisites? And we're only going to look at three that surface in verse 2. Here's his answer. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from the heart. When we think about prerequisites to commune with the king, I couldn't help but remember one of the prerequisites that former President George W. Bush had for any person, for any man or woman or boy or girl who would enter the confines of the Oval Office. Any male who would enter the Oval Office must, under, under every circumstance, be wearing slacks and dress shoes and a dress shirt, a tie and a jacket, a sport jacket or a suit jacket. You're not dressed like that, you don't enter the Oval Office. And women, if you want to enter the Oval Office during George W. Bush's administration, you would be wearing either a skirt and a blouse or an appropriate dress. You don't wear those things, you are not pre-qualified to enter the Oval Office. And the same holds true when we talk about this confident approach to communion with God. Notice the first prerequisite that it surfaces in Psalm 15, verse 2. First, we need to understand that God requires integrity. In order to commune confidently with God, we must be men and women of integrity. That is, a, a strict adherence to a moral code. Uh, integrity is, is one who is, is whole or undivided. Here's what one notable writer says about integrity. He says this, integrity goes beyond honesty. He says honesty is simply telling the truth. In other words, conforming our words to reality. Now, integrity is conforming reality to our words. He says it involves keeping promises and fulfilling expectations. So if you look at Psalm 15:2 in the ESV we have this word translated, uh, it's walked blamelessly. In the New King James, the word is translated uprightly. In the New American Standard, the word is actually integrity. Once again, it means to be whole or complete or innocent. It, is, it describes someone who is completely in agreement with the truth. Now, it's interesting because David qualifies who can sojourn in God's tent and who can dwell in God's holy hill. In our language, it's who can commune in the presence of God. He says it's the one who walks blamelessly. Now, that word walk you may be familiar with. It's a word that you find throughout the pages of both the Old and the New Testament. The word walk describes how you conduct your life. How is it that you live your life? How is it that you're going to have that unfettered, unhindered access to a holy God? Well, Psalm 1-1, you're familiar with it. Blessed is the man who does what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Or Galatians 5-16. Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, but I say, walk or live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Colossians 1.10. Many of you read this probably 30 times last month. I hope you did. So, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the first prerequisite for you and I to have this confident approach to God is that we need to be men and women of integrity. Could I just take a, a step back for a moment? I want to just kind of alert you to something that, that's coming in a few moments. If we are called to be men and women of integrity, how many of you, you don't need to raise your hand or anything, but do you sense a problem coming? In order to have this unfettered, unhindered, confident access to God, and we're called to be men, men and women of integrity, is there a problem? I will help you out with the answer to that. There's a big problem. 
There's a big problem that we need help with. But I want to show you the second qualification, the second prerequisite. It also surfaces in Psalm 15 too. And that is that God requires righteousness. Do you see it there? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The word righteousness here means what is ethically right. The underlying idea of righteousness is literally conformity to a norm. Conformity to a norm. That is, the righteousness of God requires us to measure up to his standard. He expects his people to conform to his revealed will and his revealed standard. Now, notice how God responds to the man who is righteous. It says this, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and toward their cry. That's interesting because David starts Psalm 17 by saying, hear my cry. In Psalm 34:17, when the righteous when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And so, we must not only be people of integrity, we must be people of righteousness. Do you sense a problem? Number 3. We are also called to be people of the truth. Psalm 15:2. The psalmist says, "And speaks truth in his heart." That word truth means, in my language, the real deal. It's to be faithful. It's to be reliable. It's the real McCoy. Therefore, God requires that his people speak truth from the heart. That is, we must speak the truth in love. We must live the truth. There's a verse. It's, it's actually one of, it's, it's my favorite verse in 3 John. Where John the Apostle says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. And I I can speak for every mom and every dad and every grandpa and every grandma. Young people, the most important thing for your parents is that you're walking in the truth. I I was thinking about this this morning. Did you know that if... Kurt, can I just pick on you? Because you don't care. Did you know that if you're walking in the truth... Your parents aren't here, so I can say this. If you're walking in the truth, they don't care what you do with the rest of your life. Have you ever thought about that? If I'm walking in the truth, my parents are going to be excited, right? Augustine put it like this. And I almost had a shirt printed with these words when I was a youth pastor in the early 90s. And I decided against it because there might be a way for people to misunderstand it. Augustine said, love God. And do whatever you want. You see how people could use that to construe it to mean something it didn't mean. But listen, if you love God, you truly can do whatever you want. So if if Kirk, if he is walking in the truth, I am confident that his mom and dad will say, Go for it. That means you will marry the right woman. That means you go to the right school. That means you get the right job. That means you live in the right area. That means the way you conduct your life, it's governed by this fundamental reality. I live by the truth. Wow. And once again, young people, your parents are so proud of you for the ministry that you allowed God to to enable you to participate in over the last several days. And I'm excited for what God has in store for each of you. We must not only live according to the truth, we must apply the truth. Would you hold your finger in Psalm 15 and and flip a few pages over to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 6. David says something that is, is very revealing. It's very revealing. And here is his prayer for forgiveness. But in verse 6, he says, But you delight in truth in the inner being. One translation says, You delight in truth in the inner man. That is, God requires that we not only be truthful, but that we be transparent. Now, go back to Psalm chapter 17. Now that we have the foundation set in place that God requires that you and I be men and women of integrity, of righteousness and truth. Notice the presentation. 
from the prerequisites to the presentation. And there are three things that the psalmist presents here to God. The first is found in verse 1. He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend my cry. Give ear to the prayer from my lips. You see those words? Free from deceit. What kind of a man is David? He is a man of integrity. He is a man of integrity. Look secondly, starting in verse 3. He says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of a man by the word of your lips. I have avoided the ways of the violent. That is, he not only has lips that are free from deceit, but his feet are pursuing righteous paths. Are you sensing a pattern? In Psalm 15, he said, we need to be people of integrity to sojourn in his tent. We need to be people of righteousness. And here we find that he is actually engaging in this behavior. In verse 3, he says also that he has a mouth that speaks the truth. He has a mouth that speaks the truth. In other words, all that he wrote about in Psalm 15, he is actually living in a very practical way before God. And so prayer involves a confident approach to God. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the implications of this. And I, I kind of baited you a few moments ago and asked you to wrestle with the implications. Because we've looked closely at the three prerequisites for coming into the presence of God. Integrity, righteousness, and truth. We need to be people of integrity, righteousness, and truth for one simple reason. Because this is what God is like. Psalm 32, 4 says, The rock... His work is perfect. His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Here's the serious problem. In and of ourselves, apart from God, apart from grace, apart from the gospel, you and me, we are not people of integrity. We are not people of righteousness, and we are not people of the truth. In Genesis chapter 6, 5, this is on the heels of the fall of man. We read these sobering words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, it would be very easy for us to say, yeah, that was, he, he's talking about those rotten people back in the days of Genesis chapter 6. Well, that is the partial truth, but he's also talking about every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl who is apart from grace. Our hearts are evil continually. Psalm 143, 2 says, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. This gives rise to a very important doctrine in Christian theology, and it's the doctrine of total depravity. And there's, there's lots of confusion about the doctrine of depravity that we don't have time to cover this morning, but I do want to give a brief definition. Edwin Palmer says this of total depravity. He says it means that the natural man, that is the non-believer, the person who is apart from grace, the natural man is never able to do any good that is fundamentally pleasing to God and in fact does evil all the time. That is the portrait of a person who is not a Christian. That is the portrait of each of you prior to you becoming a Christian. And so I ask this question, how then do you fulfill the prerequisites? You say, you, I scratch my bald head and say, wait a minute. I have to be a man of integrity, I have to be a man of righteousness, and I have to be a man of truth. How can I do it? And this is exactly where so many people in our culture and every other culture have gone astray. They see these prerequisites, and what do they do? They begin to, to set ladders up to God, Right? I know AJ, I think he just had to take Ridge out, but AJ has talked to me, and so has Shalant, many times about the sermon I preached a couple of years ago where he did the big ladder, right? You remember that one? I was scared. I'm scared of heights. It was a sacrificial sermon, right? Go to the top of the ladder. What do we do as people? We say, God, 
I'm going to commit myself to doing all these things for you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. I'm going to, I'm going to gird up my loins. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to please you. And that's exactly what Martin Luther did in the 16th century. Before Luther was converted, he understood that he needed to be a man of, of integrity, a man of righteousness and a man of truth. And so what did he do? He fasted more than any of the other monks. He engaged in solitude more than any of the other monks. In fact, the man that oversaw him came to him in the monastery one day, this Augustinian monastery. And he said, Martin, Martin, you are going to kill yourself. You're absolutely going to kill yourself. And Luther came to the point where he said, I know I'm to love God, but actually I hate him. His standards are so high, I can't measure up to the standards. And so he came to the point where he said, if anyone could get to heaven by sheer monkery, it was certainly I. And he was right on target. If anyone could get to heaven by fasting and saying prayers and putting money in the pot and all the rest, Luther would have been the man. But here's what we learn in scripture. There is absolutely nothing we can do to earn God's favor. I remember sharing the gospel with a friend of mine several years ago. And I told him, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he went, whoa, whoa, hold on. By the way, he had the ladder built up. He was halfway up the ladder in his mind. And I said, all of those things, you're going to go right to hell if you do those things. He said, whoa, what are you? I said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, that's too simple. That's too good to be true. And actually, you know what? It is too simple, and it is too good to be true, and it is the truth. We believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll be saved. We need the righteousness of another. We need one who is righteous. Our desperate need as sinners is the very righteousness of God. That's why Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we receive the very righteousness of God, the scriptures tell us this, that we are justified. That legal act where unjust sinners are made right in the sight of a holy God. This gift of righteousness is, is free for the taking. It's available for anyone who will willingly turn from their sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line. Some of you have already got this figured out in your minds. But if you're lacking behind, let me catch you up. The bottom line is this. We cannot be people of integrity, righteousness, and truth, which measures up to God's holy standard apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you eliminate the cross, you will fall short every single time. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Without the righteousness of Christ, we have no right to sit at the banqueting table of communion. You see, when you're robed in Christ's righteousness, you are invited to approach God with confidence. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. This is the first pillar I want you to see about prayer today is that prayer involves a confident approach to God. But there's a second thing I want you to see, and that is that prayer involves colossal expectations from God. As I was studying this passage the first pillar became very heavy to me as I, as I reaffirmed in, in my mind and my heart that I need to be a man of integrity, righteousness, and truth. And apart from the cross, I'll never get there. I'll never get there. The second pillar wasn't heavy, but it was simply magnanimous in my mind. Learning here in this passage that prayer involves colossal expectations from God. Now, David has colossal expectations because of who he's addressing. And he, of course, is addressing God. This is the God who told Moses, I am who I am. This is the God who told Moses, no one can see my face and live. 
This is the God who is great in might. He is the true God, the living God, the everlasting king. Jeremiah 10 says, At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And David learns that he needs to have colossal expectations from God. I want you to see five of those colossal expectations. First, in verse 6. Verse 6 says, I will call upon you. There's that big theme, the calling on God in the time of prayer. I will call upon you and you will answer me. Here's the first colossal expectation. And, and don't, don't miss it. Don't let it get by you. The expectation is this. God will answer your prayer. God will answer. Now, the Hebrew word translated call, as he says, I will call out to you, is a word that means this. Shout. Shout. To call out to God. I'm I'm shouting out to God. He's calling out to God in this passage. And I would call this a model prayer. An example of our posture to God. We're crying out to God for health needs. For financial assistance. For relationship assistance. For church assistance. As I prayed this morning for President Trump and Vice President Pence. And was convicted as I was walking and praying that I haven't prayed for them enough. Can we come together as a church family and, and Jerry and the prayer team? Can, can we pray for our president and our vice president, especially in light of what happened yesterday in Virginia? This horrible, this tragic event. Our leaders need our prayer. And notice in verse 6 that David anticipates an answer. I will call upon you for you will answer me. There's a basis for his confidence, you have to understand, that is rooted securely in God's character. That is God's faithfulness. The basis for David's confidence was also informed by his previous experience. He had times, many times before, where he cried out to God and God, in his faithfulness, answered him. There's also something in verse 6 that's implied here, and that is that God will hear. This is expectation number two, colossal expectation number two. God will hear. I don't know what you think when you write a letter, but I usually expect a response, whether I admit it or not. And so I sent a letter while we're on the subject of politics. I sent a letter to Senator Ben Sass about three weeks ago. And I'm still kind of hoping I'll get a response back because I have a great admiration for Ben Sass. But I wrote him to tell him that I admire him and I'm encouraged by uh, some of the things that he's doing as a senator in the state of Nebraska, as a man of God serving in Congress and wanted him to know that someone was standing with him. Well, there's a good chance I'll never hear back from this man. But here David says, God will hear. He anticipates even that he will be heard by God. And of course, you recognize here that hearing and answering are complementary, complementary rather. And David acknowledges that God will do both. He will answer. He will hear. Look at colossal expectation number three. It's found in verse seven. And Kyle, I appreciate you this morning for actually mentioning this, having no idea it would be a part of the the sermon this morning. Wondrously, verse seven says, show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. That is, the colossal expectation is that God will show his love. And David goes even further. This isn't just any kind of love. This is not puppy dog love. This is not stuffed animal love. This is steadfast love. This comes from the Hebrew word hesed. And the word means this. It means faithfulness or better yet, this is God's loyal love. God promises his loyal love to his people. The same word appears in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, Moses says, passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed, loyal love. That is the kind of love that God offers. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, chesed, 
with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. First Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In Nehemiah 1.5, And I said, O oh Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so over and over and over again, we learn of the steadfast love, the loyal love. If you like to write in your Bibles, I would write above in verse 7. Show your steadfast love, right? The loyal love of God. This is the kind of love he, he loves to shower on his people. There's a fourth colossal expectation, and it's one that caught me by surprise. And you'll know why in a moment. When I share with you the fourth expectation, you'll say, well, that's, that's pretty common knowledge, Pastor. Let me give it to you. That God will provide protection for his people and utterly defeat his enemies. We learn of this in Psalm chapter 17 verses 7 to 13. And the fourth expectation that God will protect us and defeat our enemies is an overflow of his loyal love. Because he's a God of steadfast love, he says, on the basis of my loyal love, I will protect you and defeat your enemies. And so David describes himself here as a, a person who seeks refuge. He is hidden in the shadow of God's wings. David shows the reason for such activity. He's being pursued, as you know, by his adversaries, by his enemies, from wicked people. These are literal, physical people, wicked people who seek to do his harm. Now, here's what threw me for a loop. And I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this before. But the argument goes something like this. You were no doubt familiar, not only with this promise, but the, the scores of promises in the Bible to protect his people. In the New Testament, Jesus asked the Father to protect the, the disciples from the evil one. So you get the flavor here? God's people are promised protection. Jesus prays that his disciples would be protected. How many of you know what the problem is at this point? What happened to those disciples? Most of them were what? They were martyred. Do you see the problem here? How many of you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? That there are no errors in the original autographs? That the infallibility of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, as do I? But you ask yourself, wait, wait a minute. I scratch my head and say, God promises to protect us, but most of the disciples, Right? They, they died. Some of the church fathers were martyred. And so how do we reconcile the promise with the reality? And here's the way I want to encourage you to do it. We must identify the real enemy. You see, when I say enemy, you along with me tend to think of, think, think in biblical times, you think of a guy wearing armor with a sword. And he's going to come and he's going to chop you to pieces. That's our enemy, right? Well, that's one of our enemies. That's one of David's enemies. But we need to ask, who is our real enemy? Nancy Guthrie wrote an article that has been tremendously helpful for me. And here's what she says. God has not promised to protect me from everyone I might define is my enemy. And so you see, identifying the real enemy is, is really the most important thing to discover here. She goes on, but he has promised protection from my ultimate enemy, namely sin, which because of Christ no longer has power to enslave me or determine my eternal destiny. We can entrust ourselves to this just, strong God who has gone to great lengths of the, on the cross to protect us from any enemy that seeks to alienate us from himself. And then she uttered these words, which literally blew me away. She says this, my problem is not so much a lack of protection from God. My more significant problem is that I'm sleeping with the enemy. 
justifying and enjoying my sin when all along he promises protection from its damning power, unquote. Does that strike you? That blew me away. And so when we find our refuge in Christ and when we find safety in the shadow of the cross, we realize that in the final analysis, we are totally protected from the judgment of God on the last day. Nathan and I had a great discussion about the Great Tribulation yesterday. And uh, it's, it's a great thing to explore. And as you know, there are different views on the Great Tribulation. There is the pre-trib position. There is the mid-trib position. There is the post-trib position. There's also the pan-trib position that all pan out in the end, which is not a viable biblical position, but it's fun to talk about. But as you think about the Great Tribulation, no matter where you land, pre, mid, or post, understand this, that if in God's providence... If the people of God must endure the great tribulation, we will never fall under the wrath of God. Never, never, never. And when you understand that, you begin to go deeper into the glories of Calvary, as the song says. When you understand that that you will never face the wrath of God because Jesus, as my good friend Wayne Pickens said, took the hit. Jesus took the hit for me. Jesus took the hit for Jason. Jesus took the hit for Carl and Belva. Jesus took the hit for the sins of every person who would ever believe. And so whether or not we go through the great tribulation is immaterial at this point. If we do, we will not endure 10,000 degrees of God's wrath. Why? Jesus took the hit on our behalf. And so Paul says in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's all because of the cross of Calvary and the resurrection power of Jesus. Well, there's a fifth colossal expectation, and we'll close here. It's found in verse 15. The psalmist says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And the lesson here, the expectation here is that God will be his delight. And this is the lesson that St. Augustine learned so well. He said this, O Lord, O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. He went on to say in his great autobiography, the confessions, he says, O Lord, our God, let the shelter of your wings Give us hope. Protect us and uphold us. You will be the support that upholds us from childhood till the hairs on our heads is gray or gone. When you are our strength, we are strong. But when our strength is our own, we are weak. And so this was David's colossal expectation that God would be his delight. As we close this morning, as we come to the table to partake of the elements, I want you to think for a moment about your approach to God. Do you, can you say this morning that you approach God with confidence? And the only way you can do that, the only way you can have that confidence is to be robed in the very righteousness of Jesus. And so the simplest question I want to ask this morning is, are you a Christ follower? Have you trusted in Jesus and accepted his gracious work on the cross for your sins? And have you turned from your sin and accepted God's free and forgiving grace? The first aspect of prayer that we're calling the direct pipeline to God involves moving confidently into his presence where you will receive grace and mercy and help in time of need. And so I want to encourage you as as you move into the week to, to move boldly into the presence of God. If you are robed in the righteousness of Christ, tell him your needs, tell him your hurts, settle your requests before him, offer your requests to him. We have also learned that prayer involves having colossal expectations from God. And I want to ask this morning, do you have colossal expectations from God? Or have you bought into the subtle lie of some evangelicals that, well, I probably shouldn't ask that. God won't allow me to do that. God won't allow me to be that. What about colossal expectations that we should have from God?
I remember as a little boy, I learned the verse in James 4. You have not because you ask not. And that, that was ingrained into my heart. You have not because you ask not. And I must tell you, there are things in my life that I have been praying for for years that have still not come to pass. And my responsibility before Almighty God is to continue to pray. And he will either change my heart or he will answer in a way that will be to my good benefit. But we all know this, the prayers that God answered, the prayers that God will answer for your benefit and also for the glory of God. Here's the truth point. Prayer involves a confident approach to God and colossal expectations from God. We've seen that David made good use, not only in Psalm 17, but throughout his life, he made good use of this direct pipeline to God. I want to ask, are you making good use of this direct pipeline to God? And also want to ask, how will your life of prayer How will your prayer life be revolutionized in the days to come as you go before the author of the universe, the the author of the, the scriptures, the creator of the universe? How will your prayer life be revolutionized in the days ahead? The great missionary William Carey, in one of my all time favorite quotes, said, Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. May that be a model prayer for us individually and as members of Christ Fellowship, that we would expect great things from God, that we would attempt attempt great things for God so that Jesus Christ would be glorified in all the earth. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we come uh, to the table to remember the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would zero our hearts in on these massive pillars, the pillars that tell us that, that prayer is something that we should, uh, we should approach confidently into your presence, to remember that we are to have colossal expectations before a, a great and an awesome God. God, forgive me for the days when I uh, have failed to approach you boldly, to come into your your presence with confidence, also for the times when I failed to have colossal expectations of you. God, I pray that you would reign in the hearts of each person on this day, that you would encourage this, your people. And as we remember these elements, we, of course, remember that Jesus is the only one who has satisfied our thirsty souls. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.